RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. And I'm back. This is Dusty. I'm back this episode, and, and with me as usual is Brian. Yo. And Mike. Howdy. So, guys, the first ever episode of RPG LL recorded without me. Not to uh, not to sound like I don't trust you guys, but how'd that go? I, I, I've only got more than 2,000 podcasts under my belt, so I think it went okay. <laughs> I, I struggled. I... I don't know. I felt I felt weird without Dusty there. It's like, oh, I don't I don't know what to do. I'll just talk to Brian. That'll work. I've been doing that since I was four. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so today we're talking about another game in our Pathfinder beginner box campaign. And I subsequently titled this game Dwarf Maid. Basically, the 30-second version is a dwarven ship shows up. And it turns out these dwarves are bad and they are selling, you know, dark magic artifacts to the local youth uh, in an attempt to spread dark magic, I guess. And uh, I had Nathan's character, Merciel, the thief, who was head of the local thieves guild, stumble on rumors of the uh, treasure laden ship and do a bit of investigating on her own to discover what was afoot, um, discover that, that you know, some, even some of the nobles' kids were buying some of this dark magic stuff before Merciel finally involved the rest of the party in an investigation that, you know, went basically from that noble's house back to the dwarven ship and culminated in a battle in which, uh, you know, many dwarven lives were, were, were lost, but hey, they were bad guys, so no big deal and the ship ultimately got away so that's that's how the game went now how did the game actually go so guys why don't you start off by giving me your numeric scores for for this session mike what would you rate this i'm gonna go with a five on this one um i thought it took quite a while to get the uh, the rest of the party involved and i will talk about that a little later and then um we did some interesting things with combat, but I don't know if it was interesting enough for me to say it was actually a good combat. Brian, how about you? Uh, I'm going to say uh, Mike almost talked me down to a five, but I, I was going to say a six. I'm going to say a six uh, for me. Yeah, Mike, I think Mike nailed it, but being, I guess the person who sort of led the charge on the combat or at least um, how we engaged with those dwarves, uh, it, it, I think it's probably a little more fun for me than 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 Mike, but I still, in general, I think that the uh, the session suffered a little bit again to get getting people involved and you know some of the lefty righty stuff. Uh, you know, not wasn't necessarily my favorite part of the of the campaign. So you both mentioned the combat. Why don't we go ahead and start off there? So Brian, what did you actually do during that combat, and how did it feel? Uh, well, I basically talked you into letting me use levitation magic in the way that I understood it, which was wrong. Um, so, we basically, we, there was there was this ship, and of course it was elevated. 
you know, ships like a big ship isn't uh, uh, basically even with a dock. It's usually above uh, water level. And we basically had to figure out a way to like attack uh, or the, the, the dwarves that are on the ship. And I, I don't think any of us had any kind of projectiles or anything like that. And um, we basically wanted to burn the ship because that's kind of our MO is burning things. <laughs> so um, it was almost like, like, a, like a video game where I, you, you try to keep me from being interrupted while I do my thing. So I basically, we bought barrels of oil and I wanted to levitate them uh, so that we could basically drop them onto the ship. If I remember right, was it somebody had to shoot them with an air, a flaming arrow to ignite them? Is that right? Actually, no. I, I, I very distinctly remember letting you put a wick. A wick, and it, okay. And that way when the barrel burst, the, the wick would help the, uh, the oil ignite. And yeah. in fact, Brian, I'm noticing something that both you and I are doing this episode. Between the two of us, we should go back and count, but I bet we've used the word basically about <laughs> 21 times. Probably. So moratorium on that word. I'm not even going to say it again for the rest of this episode. So essentially what I did was <laughs> I, no, I, it, was ba- it became this game effectively where I was trying to um, keep the oil in the air uh, and – have it rise to where it needed to go without uh, a dwarf or, or someone else um, or me losing my concentration uh, so that the, uh, the barrel didn't get uh, uh, knocked from the, from the sky. So, so I really, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the mechanics. Yes. Maybe we did it wrong. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't perfectly rules as written, but you asked me a question about how it works the the spells in the beginner box booklet aren't perfectly well written and you know what maybe levitation is and i just don't remember it well but for some reason we were at the table i'd kind of looked it up i wanted to get the game moving and i think i made it pretty tough on you man i made it pretty tough on you where your character had to get pretty close to these dwarves surreptitiously raise the barrel move along with the barrel, like like walk around, walk toward the ship to stay in range. Um, I laid a lot at your feet to make that happen. And I think all, whether it was rules as written or not, there were enough hoops you had to jump through that I still feel good about how that went uh, or still feel good about, about letting you do that. And I feel really good about the payoff because all that work you put into it, the payoff was huge. Yeah, it... it, it- it felt in my mind, even though it didn't necessarily come across, it felt kind of like a, a physics-based uh, portable game, mobile game, where the movement required it, it required some precision, but not necessarily. It was almost in my mind. It's kind of like Angry Birds meets Pathfinder. Um, not the not the exact right analog, but uh, essentially the same thing. Uh, but yeah, the, the payoff was huge and it, it worked and uh, there was a huge sense of accomplishment after doing that. So for the mechanics for when the barrel actually landed, we used a fireball spell. And I warned you guys. I, I had Merciel's Thieves Guild warn you guys and I, the, the, the GM at the table, pretty blatantly warned you guys that these dwarves were no pushover. So in the Beginner Box GM's booklet, there's a ton of monsters. God, I love the Beginner Box. I love the Beginner Box so much. Um, I can't do it with you guys, but I actually want to run another beginner box campaign because it was so satisfying to run 
a whole rich campaign out of one product. And again, no affiliation with Paizo. But in that GM booklet, there are you know monsters, so to speak, for each of the main ra- uh, races. No, sorry, classes. Classes. There's an evil cleric, an evil wizard, an evil uh, fighter, and an evil whichever one I didn't say already. Thief, rogue, and the evil. I, I used all of those to stand in for the dwarves, and they were all level four. And you guys, I think, were level four at this time. So putting a level four party up against a bunch of level four dwarves, it was going to be really hard. And Brian, I think with this with this basically free fireball spell that you got at the opening of combat in a surprise round, it helped make the battle doable. Oh, absolutely. We, I mean, we. I don't think we could have uh, overcome those dwarves. And that's, it was, uh, I'm not going to say it was an act of desperation, it, because it wasn't it's not like it was um it's not like it was a Hail Mary. We hadn't engaged already and we weren't like in the midst of combat. But it was uh the I felt we felt pretty desperate because again, uh, they, they they had the high ground, uh we knew that there were no pushovers and uh it, it worked and uh there was a sense of accomplishment, like I said, it, it felt good. Were we short a person on this campaign too? Was it just the three of us? Were we maybe missing our our tank, or would, were we playing with a full house? It was a full house. If you if you look at the recap email I sent, yeah. uh, all, all four of you got experience. Uh, okay, wow. So yeah, I guess we I guess we were just really afraid of going head to head with that combat and looked for a way to to give us advantage. Yeah, I, I mean that's absolutely what it was. I I think we were trying to we were trying to approach this strategically, where sometimes we are just like screw it, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, we wanted to uh, have have some sort of advantage in in in, in this case because uh, I don't think we were bored, but I think we were bored. So so one thing I'm looking on the email too. You said these dwarves were uh, were level four. We were only level three for this campaign. Oh yeah, so I, I leveled up on this one. Yep, you're right. So, uh, but I knew that's why I telegraphed. I was making this really hard. So yeah, you you were two, three level threes and a level two, going up against six level four dwarves. And I'd had such a hard time challenging you guys that I didn't feel bad about putting you up against those odds. And I hey, I was proven right when Brian wiped out half the hit points from three dwarves all at once in one fell swoop at the beginning of combat. So that makes me wonder if we would have approached it differently if if you hadn't had given us the the end game lead from uh, from Mercil's guys of how tough these guys were. I wonder if that would have turned into a uh, party wipe. We'd have oh, been I'm wiped. Sure. I'm sure it would have. That's why I wanted to telegraph that these guys were dangerous. And I don't feel bad telegraphing that. I think if you were really there, really looking at these dwarves, you'd be able to tell by scars, by armor, by well-worn weaponry. You'd be able to tell that these guys had 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 been through it and were the real deal. So telegraphing it felt perfectly fine to me, and I wanted to challenge you. So, Mike, if you didn't come up with this plan, it would have been something else. Sneak on the boat and assassinate a couple before you get the rest into combat or swim under the boat and drill a hole in it and see. Like, I don't know. I was looking for you to be a little bit ingenious. So uh, it's e- I, th- I think it's easier to figure out how tough somebody is, like in reality, than than it is sometimes in our mind. Well, think of it this way: think of our buddy Chris Triplet, the one that uh, that we don't game with. Say you see him walking down one side of the street, and you see Dusty walking down the other. Which side would you rather be on? Side with Chris. 
because Dusty's like a whole foot taller. That's a fair point. But these were dwarves. <laughs> yeah, but you can tell. You can tell. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of like some movie star examples, like Vin Diesel on one side of the street, and who's someone of comparable size to Vin Diesel, but just doesn't look as intimidating. Um, the brother from Everybody Loves Raymond. He's also a tall guy. He's also a big guy. I think I'd rather be on his side of the street than the side with Vin Diesel if they were both looking equally angry, so to speak. That's a good point. Anyway, so the improvisation, I think, went really well. Since we're talking about things that went well, I'm going to talk about the role play for a second. Uh, the, the righty and lefty stuff. So, so righty and lefty were Merciel's basically second and third in command in her local chapter of the Thieves Guild. And righty was called righty because he'd lost his right hand, and lefty was called lefty because his left hand was the real hand. So, you know, they both had the same, the same, the same arm had a hook, ended in a hook, but they were called lefty and righty for different reasons. I really enjoyed role-playing that out. Um, I did overindulge, I admit, and Mike, I'll let you cover that. I did overindulge in the role-play a bit, but the role-play was fun. And I hadn't, you know, Nathan's role-play has is mostly limited, no offense, Nathan, I know you listen, is mostly limited to quips and jokes, and they're great, and they're always on point, and they're always very topical, and I'm amazed at Nathan's quick wit. But that's usually what his role-play is limited to with the occasional really, really badass one-liner that comes off really well. He's good at that. He's good at one-line role-play. Engaging Nathan in a longer role-play was something I hadn't yet done this campaign, and I did wind up overindulging in it. Mike, talk about that. I think, uh, I think sometimes when, when we get into that era, it, or that area, it turned more into, I'm going to figure out how I can use this Thieves Guild to to build my liquid empire of money so i think sometimes we get down into a rabbit hole where 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 nathan's trying to figure out how to build this crime syndicate and we get way down beyond the the point of what these characters need to do to progress the plot for this campaign was this the first time that lefty and righty showed up or is this not not the first time but the first time they were really focused on i think this first time good it's the first time they were relevant to a game um, they had shown up. We had met them. It's the first time they were the means through which you guys got a plot hook. Yep. Yeah. So, like with with some of the Nathan stuff, like you said, it's it, like it's a joke, haha. Like the taco truck. Uh, at the same time, though, once it goes beyond the the joke, sometimes I would lose track or focus of what was going on, and it yeah. somehow it just honestly became uh, like the the stuff in in, in this game. Uh, the lefty and righty stuff, I kind of just uh, zoned out on, to be honest. If I had to be honest. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's pretty fair because sometimes it just went way beyond, you know, how it would impact my character, what it meant to me. Um, and then I kind of think the other thing there too is, is I had to ignore a lot of that stuff that was going on, you know, meta wise so that, so that it wouldn't have a conflict with my character. So it was, it was kind of double tough on me. I was trying not to zone out to be engaged in the game, but then I was also in a meta sense also trying to actively ignore what was going on so that that you know I didn't feed my own character artificially when when these uh, the uh, class conflicts these these moral conflicts came up between uh, uh, my character and Mercio. So the lawful good and and the chaotic neutral conflict basically. 
and yeah, the, yeah. the challenge of having those two alignments in the same party. Exactly. Yeah, we've covered that before, um, but I think it bears repeating because it was a theme of this campaign is, is letting you guys go in all different directions and not being as unified is a lesson that I took away from this campaign and specifically brought to the ETU campaign when I made you all not only classmates, not only you know incoming freshmen for that first session, but also suite mates. You guys all live in the same suite. You have roughly the same goals. And I think it's been a much more aligned game. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that. I agree. So delegation, I, I've just left too much to Nathan. So I, I overindulged in the role play too much and I left too much to him and, and I, I forced him. That's really where we struggled, I think, guys, is I forced him to bring you in. I yeah, forced I him to bring, and that was a mistake. I, I should have taken the reins. It would have been railroady. It would have been me stepping on, you know, I, I was so reluctant to say, hey, guys, Mercial shows up and tells you this with Nathan sitting right there and it's his character. And I, I just felt so awkward about that that I was like, all right, Nathan, you know, get the party. I said, Nathan, metagame, help me out here. Get the party involved. Let's get everyone involved. But I totally left it up to him and he struggled with it. And. Maybe the right thing to do wouldn't have been just to take over. Maybe I should have offered. We should, hey, hey, do you mind if I take over Mercial for, for 30 seconds? I think he would have accepted that lifeline and accepted the help, and it would have moved the game along. I can see that because it, it seems like kind of at that point, you you get to the point where you either have to railroad him into it or you either just let him continue along for the whole game and everybody gets bored or you let him continue on for the whole game. If he makes a horrible decision and winds up getting his character killed when no one's there to help him. So, you know, that, that, that's also a potential outcome. So anything else to say about this game before we start summing up? I like combat. <laughs> I mean, that, that, I enjoyed combat thoroughly. You know, a, a, a theme of our episodes, Brian, has been me learning how much you like the grid and combat on the grid, which routinely surprises me because, you know, you're my story-driven guy, and how Mike likes it, Theater of the Mind, which routinely surprises me because he's my game mechanics guy. This was a combat on the grid with terrain that wasn't, you know, wide open. There were the docks and there, you know, water on either side of you, and you're limited to these certain pathways and these certain places, and everything else is water. So it was a challenging map. Um, the additional challenge of keeping track of the barrel of oil, um, dropping it in the right place, managing all your spells. I could see why, you know, you were pushed up to a six where Mike was only a five with this combat. And if it hadn't been for the I mean, so the recent game that we had uh, in uh, ETU, where the game was the Jazz Hands game that we uh, we talked about uh, on a recent episode, I think I gave it like a seven or seven and a half, something like that. Uh, and it was kind. It, it had really one really engaging uh, bit of role play, and it was it was that was basically it i think if this game had been more abbreviated and was just a really compelling um combat session i think i might have rated it a seven or an eight how about you mike if we'd made that change and made it got to the combat faster kept the complex combat how would you have rated it um i think i probably would have rated it a little higher i, I think yeah i think the tough part for me was it took a long time to get there 
And then when we got there, it was more time figuring out how to do this new thing. Mm. All right. So summing everything up, then the the main feedback here is just too much time role playing with just one character, which it's tough not to do that when you play after work and it's just a two hour session. But in a two hour session, you owe it to your other players even more to get out in front of them. And a lot of the lessons that I learned you know, with my Luncheons and Dragons groups and in episodes that we talked about before about how to run games in shorter periods of time, I, I needed those lessons here, but I didn't have those lessons ready for that. We, we ran this session about a year ago, and a lot of my Luncheons and Dragons has happened in that intervening year. So I've learned all of that since then. I would run this session very differently today. Um, even even a two-hour session, I, I would get the other players in faster. I would railroad that more. I'd make sure the role play involved everyone because everyone was involved in the role play with the, with the son, the, the nobleman's son and the nobleman. And, you know, oh, Mike, we didn't even cover that. This is the beginning of Kyra's church. Oh, yeah. Vacation Bible school. Yeah. yeah. Kyra started teaching the locals the, uh, the, 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 about her Lord and Savior, Sarenrae. Yeah, so uh, this, and we didn't really get too deep into that. I know we talked about it some, but we we didn't really go into the details. But yeah, this this was the uh, the first person of the town who uh, who was interested in in hearing about my goddess because he decided it was time to get back on the right track. And it's funny, I intended your so so I, I sorry I was exiting the show, but I, I'm gonna spend a minute on this. I intended your church to develop into you having the same kind of network throughout town that Merciel did, where I wanted you to eventually have this group of students, you know, probably congregations a bit too strong of a word, but have these students, these initiates, these novices that could feed you information or help you or spread messages on your behalf or whatever. I wanted you to have that same thing. And we just never made it happen. Did you, did you want that? Did I not make it clear what I wanted? Why didn't that work? I, I think it didn't work. Cause we were kind of in the downward progression of the campaign. Kind of when we got there, I, I think we were getting to the point where we were looking at wrapping up plot points rather than creating new plot points and new new channels and further developing the world. So I, I don't, I think we just didn't take the time to dedicate attention and resources to it. If I'd done this at the beginning, would you have enjoyed having a network of NPCs or would it have taken away from the game? I think I would have joined that. I think it would have been fun. And for those of us without a network of NPCs, it would have probably been tedious. You know, that's also a good point. I, I was maybe also looking at, at kind of the thing we were getting into with, with Nathan Steve's Guild Network and taco trucks and haggling over rates and barter prices and how much I can sell stolen loot for. So that, that might have been the other thing that kept us from going there. Hmm. I've got to uh, see you would have liked it. No one else would have. I've got to figure that out. There's something about... I don't know. I've got more thinking to do there. I've got more thinking to do about how to make that happen. Maybe, maybe between game role play sessions, but I don't know how much you would have wanted to take on. Right. Out. Cause that's homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've, I've got to think on that some more. We'll have more episodes where we keep talking about, you know, your congregation a little bit and we'll keep digging on this. Cool. Uh, hey, if you're so lesson learned, don't focus on just one character for your role play. Pull everyone in as quickly as you can. Get everyone involved as quickly as you can. And uh, 
get your game moving with everyone at your table engaged. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.